Good morning, church family. Our reading today is from Revelation chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of the Lord. A persecuted minority always needs hope. Key figures emerge historically among persecuted minorities, and they inspire hope. You may remember these words, I have a dream given to a persecuted minority by Martin Luther King. What you probably sometimes forget is that the entire book of Revelation is a message of hope to a persecuted minority. A persecuted minority of Christians, written by John, who was himself in exile, written to people who all over the Roman Empire were persecuted and routinely losing their lives. But the book of Revelation, the passage read today and all of the chapters in the book of Revelation are not just, as you know, to the persecuted minority in first century Rome. They're words for us. Now, we may not consider ourselves to be a persecuted minority. As a matter of fact, I would not suggest that we are. We happen to be in a majority culture. Yes, we may face trials of a variety of sizes and shapes, but overwhelming persecuted minority? No. Having said that, I will contradict myself. But yes. Why are we a persecuted minority? Not because we're under the heavy boot of Rome. The reason we're a persecuted minority is because the prince of the power of air is active in our world wherever we go. And that prince of the power of the air presses down on us in our already not yet existence, we feel the pressure of a persecuted minority that follows Christ when many other people do not. So when we come to Revelation chapter 19, what I'm entitling the final battle, what we find are some stirring 
may be disturbing images. Consider Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, before we arrived for our reading this morning. It talks about Babylon, the city that is being destroyed. If you look at the book of Revelation, you realize that Babylon is a metaphor. It's not the place called Babylon. It's not necessarily a place called Rome. It's not necessarily a geographical location. Instead, Babylon is symbolic of the world, the flesh, and the devil. In Babylon, according to this revelation of John, materialism happens to be the god of the world. In Babylon, financial gain Profit is achieved on the backs of the poor in Babylon. What is real is not eternal. What is real are things. In Babylon, the words of Jesus make no sense. What words? The words Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts and where thieves don't break through and steal. The entire movement of the world in Babylon, which is still our world, is against the saying of Jesus. There's another image in this story of Babylon, this metaphor for the world. The word is whoredom, the whore of Babylon. Now, we may quickly revert to thinking of sexual ideas. That's not really the point. Sexual immorality is inappropriate, but that's not John's point. John's point is this. Whoredom is seeking Pleasure in the wrong place. Whoredom is substituting what is fake for what is real, which is true love. And in Babylon, everybody runs after the horror of the world. The material that will never satisfy. The power that is actually evil. The greed that creates your prosperity. That's the horror of Babylon. And as the real thing is avoided, the bride of Christ, the horror of Babylon emerges as the only article of satisfaction. There's something else about this story, just these few verses. Whenever the final battle comes, whenever the final judgment is declared, There is rejoicing. Rejoicing. There's an image of the 24 elders bowing down and shouting hallelujah, hallelujah to our God. Hallelujah to the one who comes to save us. Hallelujah to the one who has the mighty sword in this final battle. Hallelujah. There's something else that brings out their hallelujah. And it is this, for all of history, says John, 
the prophets and the servants of God have been persecuted and martyred. The blood of the martyrs is seen in the book of Revelation. Murderers, shall we say, absolutely taking the lives of those who follow Christ just because they did. And so the rejoicing is that that has come to an end. No longer do they fear murder, that is, the martyrs. There's something else about this image that's really odd. If you didn't see it, let me describe the disparity. Here is the Babylon, the whore of Babylon being destroyed, going up in smoke. And right next to it, there is a banquet. The banquet of the Lamb. There's a celebration. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Does that seem an odd contrast? It strikes me that way. But it's not so odd when you realize that the celebration is the end of evil. The celebration is that a new kingdom is dawning. The celebration is that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is here. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. As I read it this week, I couldn't help but think of... um, Psalm 23, which all of you probably know by heart. Remember that phrase? He spreads a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right in the middle of the chaos and the evil and the murder, God says, no more. Here's your banquet feast. You're now in my presence. There's another stirring image that's in this passage. It's a rider on a white horse. Riding a white horse has always been symbolic of conquerors. And the one riding this white horse judges, judges, and makes war against evil. On this white horse is an individual whose eyes are flames of fire indicating nothing, nothing is hidden from his sight. On this horse sits a man whose head has many diadems, many, many crowns, symbolic that this king is the king of all kings over all the earth. Every crown is his crown. On this horse is a man who rides with a name that only God knows. God's secret name. And on this horse rides a man whose robe is dipped in blood with the winepress of the wrath of God. It is the word of God, Jesus Christ. His armies are wearing white linens, which are symbolic of righteousness. And he and the army are doing battle against Satan, against evil. There's a sword that comes from his mouth that strikes down the nations. 
As a matter of fact, all this imagery we sometimes look at and we think, oh, that's the book of Revelation. Yes and no. It is the book of Revelation. But it's also images from apocalyptic Jewish literature for centuries before the book of Revelation. In other words, in this apocalyptic literature, which is too numerous to name, these same images appear. This same figure, not with that name, appears. This same figure comes and conquers evil. This same figure delivers the people of God. I, I hate to put it this way, but John's revelation is nothing new. John's revelation is a reminder of what we've already seen in the books of Ezekiel and Isaiah. It's everywhere that God is going to judge in the end. And the final battle is coming. It's all over the Old Testament, all over Jewish apocalyptic literature. And in case you rush to the conclusion that it's just an Old Testament theme and not appropriate for the New Testament, it's in the New Testament as well. We sometimes get queasy with the notion of the final battle and God's judgment and a robe dipped in blood. And in my interpretation, the robe dipped in blood is a sign that God is going to settle all accounts in a judgmental, even violent way at the end of the age. Again, I know plenty of theologians not as many as others, who are queasy with that. And in my opinion, they do mental gymnastics and twist themselves into pretzels trying to figure out a way not to embrace this. And they say things like, this is not the way of Jesus. How could we ever embrace violence as a part of the final end? There's probably a number of you who have read this account and different interpretations, and I respect that. But I just wanted you to know I don't agree. To put it another way, I, I think it is what it is. <laughs> I think that Jesus Christ comes to judge with an iron of rod, an iron rod, and his name is King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. What about the Beatitudes? What about turn the other cheek? What about the love of God? What about the crucifixion when we're called to take up our cross and follow Him? All true. But equally true, God is the final judge. There's something else that's true. What we learn in the scripture could be summarized with these words. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when I dip my robe in blood, I'm out of line. When I don't turn the other cheek, I'm not following Jesus. When I call for the destruction of A, B, or C, that's not... That's not what I'm called to do. 
What I'm called to do is follow the Christ of the cross and wait for that same Christ of the cross to judge in the end. Vengeance is not mine. It's God's. And I believe someday God will repay. If you want a reference for that, just take a look at 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. Paul explicitly says in the end day, Christ is going to come in fire. This is the end. The final battle. The message to them and to us is what? Let's start with the message to them. John says to them, you've experienced glimpses of judgment, but this is not final. John says to them, you've already been vindicated and justified. But even that is not final. John says to that, them, you've longed for things to be put to rights, and they will be. But that day has not yet come. Hang on to the hope of the vision that I give you. That day is coming. You live in the already not yet. Another question related to this story is this. Who's the enemy? Are the enemy the people who haven't yet accepted the good news about Jesus? No. You know who the enemy is? Satan. Satan, it's very direct. When the battle is engaged, God is destroying the work of Satan. When the battle is engaged, the author of sin and death who introduced the idea in the garden is taken to task. When the battle is engaged, the wicked who have been killing, murdering the church are collateral damage, no doubt. But the principal figure in the battle is Satan himself. The object of God's wrath is not those who have tried and failed. The object of God's wrath is not those who need mercy. If it were that, we'd all be in trouble, right? Every one of us would fall short of the glory of God. And every one of us would experience the final judgment of God. But that's not this story. This story is about the defeat of Satan. The defeat of sin and death. Why? Because sin and death crush, damage, twist the creation that's beautiful that God has made. That's what sin does. There's no such thing as sin itself. It isn't an entity. It's a twisting of what is already good. And God says, no more. Eventually, the final battle will put an end to that twisting. And the only way it will is when the enemy of our soul is destroyed. You know what the final battle is? It's deliverance from tyranny. When I think of final battles, when I think of war, I can't help but think of 
deliverance from the enemy at the end of a major conflict. And the way the citizens of a nation who are delivered just raise their hands with shouts of joy. I can't help but think about contemporary images in the Ukraine when cities that were under the oppression of an oppressor are now liberated and their shouts of joy. When the battle is finally over, and it will be, here's what will happen. We'll have slavery from sin and freedom to serve. When the battle is finally over, the idols that distract us from God will be crushed and there will be no more temptation. When the battle is over, we will move as one from greed to generosity. When the battle is over, we will move away from lust and towards true love. When the battle is over, we will move from war to peace. There's an image that predicts this end. And the image is that those who have made war will take their spears and they will beat them into plowshares. When the battle is over, the instruments that should be for good will be turned into good. The destructive activities will be replaced with creative practices. That's what the end of the battle is all about. What about now? What about where we live right now? Well, we live in the already, not yet, don't we? We already have been given freedom in Christ. That is true. We now have the ability to follow in a way we could never have done before because of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. We've been given freedom. That's true. But not completely. Already Jesus is Lord over the whole earth, over all creation. But not everyone accepts it. So already, but not yet. What is the not yet? It's true that Christ is king, but it's not been acknowledged. What else is the not yet? It's true that we've been delivered from the power of sin, but we still struggle with our old nature. Think of Romans 7. What is also true of the not yet? Because we're fighting daily in the already, not yet, a battle with principalities and powers. Think of Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God. We're already there, but not yet. The message of Revelation is beautiful. It begins this way. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
I was a persecuted minority in exile on the Lord's Day. And no matter what the circumstances of my life, I still had the Lord's Day. And I still had the presence of Christ. And I still had the perspective concerning the real world. I was in the presence of the Lord on the Lord's Day. And I had a vision about the future. And I want to give it to you. There's a struggle, John says. I know that. It's because we're not there yet. But there's a day coming when the final battle will change everything. So please, friends, he says to his readers, please keep your eyes fixed on that vision. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, as the book of Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of your faith. No matter what you're going through, keep your eyes fixed above to what is real. So what is the message for today? We're not in first century Rome. John is not on the Isle of Patmos. What about us today? I guess I lead with questions. Are, are you feeling oppressed by personal sin? There's a day coming where you're going to have complete freedom. Are you burdened by circumstances of life that are the result of sin? There's a day coming when you're going to have complete freedom. Are you discouraged and overwhelmed by the evil that's in the world? There's a day coming when evil will be vanquished completely. I've got good news for you. You're here. Like John. On the Lord's day. And in this place, surrounded by these people, you can seize the vision anew. You can believe it even though your faith is weak and wavering. You can believe it even though the onslaught of the enemy seems overwhelming. You can still believe it. You are here on the Lord's day. And this is the vision that was given to John for you. You're here with people who are experiencing the same life. You're here, right here, with people who are experiencing the same stories of grace. You're here, right here, trusting the truth of this day for next week. You're here on the Lord's day. You know what, my friends? Reality. Reality is what we experience here on the Lord's day. The call to truth 
here on the Lord's day. The call to hope here on the Lord's day. The call to grace here on the Lord's day. The call to hope here on the Lord's day. It is here. So sees it. Thank you, Deontay. But here's my final word. It seems real right now, doesn't it? I hope. But on Monday, you're going to have to believe it by faith so that it can be true. Take the Lord's Day to next week. The final battle is his. You know when it was pronounced? Not actually in Revelation. It was pronounced on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished. Already. We're not there yet. But the day is coming. So believe it. By faith this week. And may your hearts be restored. Let's pray. God, we thank you for hope. Some days, um, well, honestly, we feel kind of hopeless. We're overwhelmed by our own personal sin, which just drags us down and drives us crazy. We know we ought to be better, but we can't seem to get there. And then... Then we remember the story of grace. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by the evil that's all around us. And then we remember the final battle. Sometimes we're saddened by those who don't yet understand that you are Lord. But we pray for them right now that someday they will be numbered among those who Paul describes when he says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Until that day, Lord, give us faith and make us faithful, we pray. Amen.